Where is God when we hurt? God allows pain, but he also has a purpose for it. Discover more on today's episode of A View from the Wall. Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor Joe Kerr with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View From The Wall. Welcome to A View From The Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs along with Joseph Kerr, and we're honored to be with you today. And our society is facing challenging times, and even our strongest leaders are struggling. When we face doubts and ongoing challenges, we often begin to question our faith and even question God. What is God up to when we face sickness or a hurricane or even a tornado or a wildfire? Why does he allow such tragedies when he could do something about it? Today, we're joined by an expert who has long addressed such questions. Our guest is Greg Kokel, founder and president of Stand to Reason. Greg has hosted a call-in radio show for 27 years, teaches as an adjunct professor at Biola University in Southern California, and is the author of numerous books, including Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Greg, welcome to A View from the Wall today. Well, gentlemen, it's great to chat with you. Well, we've had you on the program before, and people love your concise, helpful answers to tough spiritual questions. And since that time, you've been busy with a variety of projects and have released the Tactics Study Guide. Catch us up a little bit on some of your recent work. Well, I wrote a book called Tactics, a a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions about 10 years ago, because uh, Christians just needed something like that to get the knowledge that they have gained regarding different issues into play in a productive way in a conversation that uh, looked more like diplomacy than D-Day. Let's just put it that way. And last year uh, was the 10-year anniversary of that book, and so what we did is released a 10-year anniversary edition, but in the process, by you know, after 10 years, I had a whole bunch more I wanted to say about the topic, so I added all of that to it. We had about 35 to 40 percent more material, almost twice as many tactics. I'm pretty thrilled to see that people have received it so well over the years, and um, they've received it well, they tell me, because and this is a comment I hear most frequently, it just simply changed their lives. It changed their ability to engage in a productive way with others. And it's flattering to hear that. It's uh, it's humbling. Uh, but in a way, it's not surprising because this material changed my life too and made my attempts at engaging people effectively for Christ much more productive than they ever have been. Greg, I'm a small group leader at our church. Along with my wife, we lead a group. Give some of our small group leaders an idea how they might incorporate this. Yeah, I think if I were leading the group, I would make sure that everybody in the group read the chapters relevant to the particular topic for that week before they came there. Then when they're in the group setting, then they can kind of go over the main concepts and discuss those. And the group leader can ask questions about those main concepts. In fact, in the study guide, there's a little kind of a quiz or a test towards the end of each session and actually at the beginning of each session to review the material the week before, which I think is always a good idea. You review what came before, and you could do that in an interactive Q&A kind of circumstance. So the leader can say, all right, now Greg taught about such and so. What does that mean? What are the three blah, 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 or whatever? And then let them try to recall from memory 
what they covered the prior week, and then go over the new material and then review that with the study questions at the end. But there's also discussion questions that are part of each segment. So this involves uh, and enables, um, I think, fruitful interaction that people can have in a discussion manner. And at the end, there's also kind of further thoughts. So I have these short vignettes where I talk about things related to the material, and these also can stimulate more discussion and more questions. Well, this is a great resource, and we will have links to all this information at IamAWatchman.com. But let's face it, it has been a tough year. There's been COVID-19. We've had several major tornadoes, wildfires, hurricanes, a challenging economy, students home from school. Uh, Greg, as we look at all the things facing our nation, how do these changes impact how we talk about our faith with other people? Well, I, I think, um, and this may seem counterintuitive a little bit, but I think the things that face people and the way they respond are, are very similar from age to age. Fundamentally, people are concerned in, in various ways that they express it about the problem of evil. Everybody knows something, no matter where they live or when they live, they all know that there's something wrong with the world. And so I actually think the problem of evil is one of the greatest assets that Christians have to promote the Christian worldview, because all of the problems that people identify, whether they are problems in nature or problems with the inhumanity of man-to-man, um, these are all things that are predicted by the Christian worldview. It is perfectly consistent with the Christian worldview. In fact, I'll even take it further. I think that the problem of evil is one of the best arguments for the existence of God, not against the existence of God. There can't be a way the world is not supposed to be, that would be a problem of evil, hey, things aren't supposed to be this way, unless there is a way that the world is supposed to be. And there can't be a way the world is supposed to be unless you got a sposer, so <laughs> to speak. That's God, okay? Now, what I, with that knowledge in my mind, I will use my tactical game plan to maneuver with questions to try to help make that point. And I do that in the tactics book. I give illustrations of that very problem and how to use the uh, tactical game plan to exploit even the problem of evil for our benefit. Well, that's a great perspective. And we've been talking with Greg Kokel, founder president of Stand to Reason. We'll be back with more right here on The View from the Wall. Stick with us. From I Am A Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am A Watchman Minute. Friends in Christ, let me share a Bible verse that can change your life. It's James 4.2, you have not, for you ask not. Many tend to think that because God knows all things, there's not a need to voice our prayers. That's just not true. The biblical mandate is clear. We are to ask and seek and knock and pray and not give up. In the next verse, James 4.3, we are instructed to pray with the right heart and motive and for the right things. So verses 2 and 3 present the key to a powerful prayer life. We are to ask and pray with precision and passion and with the right heart and motive. Yes, there is power in prayer. Be quick to voice your praises and prayers to the Lord. Be bold. Be faithful. Be a watchman. I am a watchman.com. 
Welcome back to A View from the Wall. This is Dylan and Joseph Kerr, and we've been talking with Greg Kokel, author of Tactics. And in this segment, we want to talk a little bit about how tactics directly apply to life in 2020. So using the tools that you teach in tactics, Greg, let's go through some of the topics everyone is talking about. And we'll start with the one that's obvious in our culture right now, which is the issue of racism. We see racial injustice still today, but then we see riots and violence uh, as well. And we want to do something to help, but we don't even know where to begin. What does the Bible say about addressing this issue of racism? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting, uh, as I've thought about that particular question, the the Bible says virtually nothing about racism per se, all right? It doesn't address racism in the way we talk about it today. But it has a lot to say about the nature of all human beings and our moral obligations towards each other um, as a result of what we're actually like. And what the Bible says about all human beings is two things. We are made in the image of God. Every human being in one sense, because of that, is, is beautiful and valuable, and all of our human rights are grounded in this notion that we're different from everything else because, and, and everyone, every other creature because of the way God has made us. And this is captured, of course, in our own founding documents. You know, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, meaning human beings here, are created equal that each is endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this then, this part of the Christian worldview, becomes the moral groundwork by which we can oppose all kinds of vice towards other human beings, including the vice of racism. So the first thing I want to say is that the Christian worldview is very well situated to be able to address the problem in a meaningful way. It is, um, an atheistic worldview is a secularist worldview, is not. If they say racism is wrong, I'm gonna say, says who? You know, your grandma? Right. Really, where are you getting these rules from? Are you making them up yourself? Well, a, a different generation makes up a different set of rules for themselves, you know? There were Jim Crow laws 50, 100 years ago. Well, what was wrong with that for them at that time? if we're just all making up our own rules. And by the way, evolution is not going to help you here. It's going to hurt. Because when you read Darwin, um, actually Darwin's Origin of Species has a longer title. And the title, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something about the superiority of some races over other races in virtue of the evolutionary process. So Charles Darwin, based on his Darwinism, was, was radically racist by today's standards. No, the only worldview that's going to help you out here is some kind of robust theistic worldview that dictates how we are to deal with other people. And by the way, that's the worldview that Martin Luther King embraced. That's what informed his own convictions 50 years ago, and that led to the civil rights movement. Now this has taken a, quite a turn. And, 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 uh, and this is where I think another question, which is central to the game plan, is really helpful. Uh, the first step of the game plan is to get clear on what other people are claiming. And the question that I encourage them to use is, what do you mean by that? All right. So when somebody says racism is a problem in this country, here's the first thing that you ought to do. Get a definition of racism. 
what does racism actually mean in the way they're using it? And I'm going to just promise you something, gentlemen. It is going to be very, very difficult in most situations for anyone who's claiming that some individual is a racist or that the country is racist for them to give a clear definition of it. One other thing I want to mention, though, and that is once you get racism clear in your mind, I think it's fair to ask, what is it about racism that makes it evil? And I think the answer is going to be something like, that you are taking human beings that are valuable, made in the image of God, and you are treating them in an inhumane way, in an unjust way, okay? And I think, you know, that's, that's a pretty good characterization of what makes racism evil. But if we are going to deal with racism as individuals, as groups, and as a culture, then we cannot deal with racism in a way that compounds the error that racism entails. That is, we can't deal with racism by treating other human beings in an inhumane way and in an unjust way because we think they're racist. And what I've seen of late This is not characteristic of the early stages of the civil rights movement 50 years ago, but it certainly is the way things are playing themselves out now, is those who are fighting racism uh, in, in many ways, and many of the people, are reproducing the same vice, the same harm that makes racism bad. They are fighting racism by mistreating other people. And by the way, they're mistreating them based on their race and their skin color, not by the, their individual character. This leads to another thing called critical race theory that's really taking over a lot of the culture. But I, those are the steps that I would take in a conversation to clarify some things when I'm, when I'm talking to people about the racial issues that are being discussed in public right now. You alluded to this in your answer about racism, that idea that the rules change over time and we're more advanced on the timeline. So we know more than the people before us. And of course, now we have the internet, so we, we know everything. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's true. And one of those things that's under attack right now is the family and the Christian view of sexuality, gender, marriage. There are those who would argue, well, that was good for a time, but it's not true and it doesn't apply now. How do we answer that claim? Well, to offer it substantively right now, not so much tactically, is that our understanding of gender and sexuality and marriage are not based on cultural norms. They aren't things like, you know, well, we eat with forks and spoons and knives here in this culture, but in other cultures like India, they eat with their hands, you know, and these are just cultural norms. And, uh, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do kind of thing. This isn't that kind of thing. And uh, the, re- the reason it's not that kind of thing is because the, the standards regarding family and marriage are not rooted in custom. They are rooted in, in the shape of reality. They are rooted in the way the world is. And by the way, Jesus makes this very clear. Now, he undergirds it a little bit theologically, but you can overlook that to see a broader point. So Jesus says, from the beginning, it's been male and female. Now, the theological point is that he's making, in Matthew 19, a male and female, one man, one woman, becoming one flesh for one lifetime. I mean, that's marriage to Jesus. That's a summation of it. But he's, he's grounding it in the way God made it, all right? 
But notice, you step back from God. It's still made that way. Even if you're not religious, it still turns out that human beings are binary in their sexuality, and that is necessary for them to reproduce. And when a husband and wife get together to reproduce, because there's long gestation periods, uh, then they should stay together for a long time for the sake of the offspring. Notice I'm just speaking here now in a certain sense naturalistically. This is common sense. And the other things that are so-called the new ethics, all of these things just undermine common sense notions about the way the world is structured. And see, this is a great strength, I think, of the Christian worldview, gentlemen, is that we are not speaking strange things here. We are speaking things that people have understood, regardless of their uh, knowledge of the Bible, for thousands of years. Um, there's never been anything like same-sex marriage even considered for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human civilization because people understood. Look at a man. Look at a woman. Okay, there it is. We see they make babies, and we got to protect that, and so we're going to guard that relationship and privilege it and regulate it because as a rule, uh, as a group, and by nature, <laughs> they produce the next generation, which every culture cares about. So even though people are going to try to relativize some of these elements, it turns out that these foundational things like gender and sexuality and marriage, etc., these aren't cultural constructs. They aren't something that people just invented. These are things that flow from the way reality is structured. And so when you try to work against that with a new system of ethics, you are actually working against reality itself, and there's going to be a payment that has to be made for that. Well, we hope you've been enjoying Greg Kokel and his perspectives here from his book, Tactics. We'll be back with more here on A View from the Wall. Stick with us. The Bible predicts the rapture of the church is coming. Are you ready? Soon many will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Only they will escape the dark days that are coming, a time of tribulation that will usher in the Antichrist and great destruction upon the entire earth. There's only one escape, one way, one light, one truth. His name is Jesus. He came and died so that we may live forever with Him. But to receive this new life, there are three things we must do the ABCs of salvation. A, admit you're a sinner and that you need a savior. Ask for forgiveness and receive his grace. B, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came, lived, died, rose again, and will come again. Believe that he is Lord and God. C, commit to walk his path, the path he wants you to walk, and walk it out by faith. Then you'll be ready for the return of the Lord. To learn more about the rapture and how to know for sure, visit amiraptureready.org. Well, 
Welcome back to A View from the Wall. This is Dylan and Joe, and we've been talking with Greg Kogel, the author of Tactics and the founder of Stand to Reason. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the last days where there will be perilous times and goes through a list of details about some of the negatives we will experience in the last days. Many people see what's happening in our society now, and they say, I think we are there. Uh, But now, as Christians, we look to God's Word and we say, is it really as still as convicting and challenging and helpful today when it comes to worldview as it was in the time when Paul wrote the words in 2 Timothy about the Word of God being God-breathed. Can Christians confidently say all the answers are found in the Bible for our biblical worldview? Greg, how would you respond to that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm very familiar with that passage in 2 Timothy, which, by the way, is the last book that Paul wrote. He's on his way out. He knows he's about to be executed. He finished the course. He is passing the baton now to his disciple, Timothy, okay? And what he's identifying is the state of the world in the last days, which, by the way, he ident- he, the Scripture identifies everything after the ascension of Christ as the last days. And so we can identify with those behaviors, this rogue's list of vice that we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, just as much as Timothy could understand it. And subsequent statements in chapter 4, when even the Church will not endure sound doctrine, but will want to have their ears tickled. I think it's interesting, between those two passages, we have the statement that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction. Uh, training in righteousness, etc. You know, um, he, he is instructing Timothy not to be swayed either by the, in a sense, the relativistic vice of the world. People that they don't have a moral compass. They are going nutty with all kinds of destructive immorality. And the church, in many ways, is going nutty because they're following their sensual impulses, having their ears tickled. Here's the antidote Paul is telling Timothy. It's right here. And the point here that I want to make, the way I want to state it is, what the Bible tells us is what reality is actually like. All these other groups inside the church and outside have various views of reality that aren't true. Paul says to the Colossians, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. And so how do we keep from being taken captive? We do what Paul tells Timothy to do right in that passage. He says, you, Timothy, however, continue in the things that you have learned. And where you have learned it, you learned it from your parents in the Old Testament scriptures, because all scripture is God-breathed. That's the context and flow of thought there. And so this becomes the scripture, the word, becomes the antidote to confusion, to relativism, to false philosophies of men. This is how we keep our heads on straight. We get our marching orders and our structure of the world understanding from scripture. And by the way, when we do that, we realize that most of what it says uh, fits our common sense understanding of the world as it is anyway. It makes sense what Scripture says about human beings and about morality and about God's existence, etc., etc., etc. Greg, you've been on the program before. You know many of our listeners are active in their church and consider themselves watchmen or women. They watch, warn, witness, and use programs like Tactics 
to help them finish well and apply God's word to every situation. We like to close each program with a word of encouragement and challenge directly to that group of people. So speak to our watchman, Greg. Sure. My biggest concern right now uh, as an apologist is not winning a bunch of people to Christ who are hostile to the gospel. That is not my personal concern. It's the role of the church, obviously. But my concern is with discipleship principally, which is the Great Commission. That's what we're told to do, make disciples. Now, we've got to make converts before we make disciples. My concern, though, in the church is that the church is being dragged down with a bunch of foolishness. And they are, little by little, being won over by the false philosophies of the world. So as a, as a Christian, a thoughtful Christian person uh, and an apologist, a defender of the faith, I want to persuade Christians that, that they should stay faithful to Christ. Because there's no other alternative. There's no other answer. Every other alternative leads to despair, to be honest. Only Christ offers an answer that satisfies the deep intuitions of the human heart. And I, my, my challenge to them would be to be faithful. Keep your hand to the plow. Read Second Timothy. Read what Paul tells Timothy as he's on his way out and he's passing the baton to Timothy. Chapter 1, guard what has been entrusted to you, Timothy. Guard it. Pass it on to other people, Second Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, be a good worker, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the words of truth. This is in chapter 2 also. And then towards the end, he says, I've been faithful. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And that's what I would like every one of the people who are listening to me to be able to say, including me, at the end of our course, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. That is so well said, and there's no better way to wrap up our program today than to challenge our listeners to do that very thing, to finish the course, to keep the faith. We hope you've enjoyed our time with Greg Kokel today, and if people want more about your ministry, Greg, where can they go to get more? Well, the simplest thing to do is go to str.org. Stand to reason. str.org is the best place for them to go. Well, you heard it there. And Greg, thank you for being with us today. We want to encourage all of you who are listening today to take some time to check out our resources at IamAWatchman.com, where you can listen to this program again, as well as our other episodes and get other resources to encourage you in your faith. Thanks so much for joining us today. Be with you next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.